Hello and welcome to the second series of Can I Ask You a Personal Question with Will and Dan. I'm Luke, the producer. As always, thanks for downloading the podcast. In this week's episode, we speak to Jimmy Mulville, TV writer and producer and co-founder of Hattrick Productions, the company behind dozens of the UK's best-loved programmes, including its flagship show, Have I Got News For You. If you're enjoying the podcast, please let us know by leaving a review and, if possible, a five-star rating. It'll really help us out for the future. Without further ado, on to the podcast. Enjoy! It's been a while, hasn't it? It's been a while. It has. Yeah. After the you. roaring success of season one, we're back again. And this time, it's With a boom. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's <laughs> Sorry, um, say that again if you want. Because <laughs> I interrupted you. Okay, um, who are we speaking to this week? Uh, Jimmy Mulville. Oh, is, of course. Who is the co-founder and managing director of Hattrick Productions, which is a TV production company uh, behind Have I Got News For You, Father Ted, Outnumbered, Room 101, The Worst Week Of My Life, and many more. From my background research, you're from Liverpool. Um, I am you, Liverpool. You, uh, your your mum... Uh, I think I read this interview. Your mum was a, a waitress. Your dad worked in a in a factory in Liverpool. You yeah. went to a comprehensive, and then you went to Cambridge. Um, I did. So that must have been quite. I mean, um, I might presume that, that that must have been a bit of a. You must have been a bit of an outlier there. Yes, uh, we're a very ordinary Liverpool waiting class family. I go to this school, which was a grammar school, and that year I went. It was turned into a comprehensive, but it managed to retain some brilliant teachers. Mm. And I had, a, I had a brilliant teacher called Douglas Cashin who spotted that I was quite good at Latin. Yeah. So he said, why don't you do ancient Greek? So I thought, okay, I don't know. He said, well, you, in order to do ancient Greek, you'll have to drop chemistry and geography. I said, you had me at chemistry. I'm in. Because <laughs> um, I hated chemistry and I hated geography. And um, so I did ancient Greek and, and Latin and I kind of was good at it. And I just loved the escapism of it. You know, escaping into those strange worlds. Yeah. And then I tagged on ancient history and also I did French for A-levels. So I did four A-levels with a great friend of mine, also an unusually an only child, David Hughes. And we both managed to get places at Cambridge. And then a week before I um, went to Cambridge, I got married mm. to my childhood sweetheart. And um, she, she deserved a lot better, actually. But uh, the poor girl, was, she came down to Cambridge and um, and you won't be surprised to hear that that marriage didn't last. <laughs> How long did it last? Well, th- th- we we ended up we ended up getting through Cambridge, and I came to London and got a job as a porter in Lewisham Hospital mm. because I couldn't get a job anywhere else. So the only week I signed on, I was sharing a house in Catford for a tenner a week in 1978. And um, wow, yeah, and I signed on at Catford um, uh, DSS. And the, you know, you had to go to the desk and the lady asks you details. And then she says, what kind of work are you looking for? I said, I'd like to be a film star. I said, well, there's not much call for that round here, but they do need porters in Lewisham Hospital. <laughs> so off I went for six months. And then I got a call from um, a man called Ian Davidson, who was the script editor at the BBC. And he'd seen me perform in the Cambridge Footlights at the Edinburgh Festival. Mm. And so I had a meeting with him. He was a really nice guy. And he wanted me to write some sketches, which I tried to do very badly. And I approached a friend of mine, Andy Hamilton, who I've worked with for the last 40 odd years. He wrote Drop the Dead Donkey, Outnumbered, 
It's a brilliant writer. And um, mm. we wrote some sketches and nothing came of it. Um, but I, I did go and see a friend of mine who was then a radio producer. His name was Griff Reese Jones. And um, he was a radio producer straight out of university. And I went to see one of his shows and I was in the pub afterwards. I mean, an argument broke out about the show. I didn't like it very much. And this older man, must have been 40, uh, with glasses, was taking me to task. And Chris said to me, that was my boss you were talking to, you idiot. <laughs> and the following day, I went to meet him for lunch. And there was this man, David Hatch. And he called me into his office and said, you had a lot to say for yourself last night. I said, I'm really sorry I had too much to drink. Um, I'm really sorry if I said anything. No, no, no. He said, no, it was very interesting. He said, I've got three writer bursaries. Uh, two of them have been allocated, one to Rory McGrath, one to Guy Jenkins, and I've got one going spur. Do you want to do it? Mm. Now, the thing is, I knew that I wasn't really a writer. But currently, my job description was hospital porter in Lewisham. Yeah. I actually thought being a writer for BBC Radio is a bit nearer to where I want to be. I wanted to be an actor. Mm. So I took the job. A year later, I found myself uh, taking on the role of being a producer as well. So I became a a writer producer in BBC Radio and I stayed there until 1981, 82. Um, and then I got a, um, we, we kind of got promoted or we moved into television with a pilot that we wrote for um, Thames TV, which they hated. Uh, it was far too rude for Thames TV, which is very much a family network. But we managed to nick the, the VHS out of the boss's office. He wouldn't give us the VHS. So we broke into his office one night. Rory and I went to the, to the bar at Thames TV in Teddington. And Rory had these big hobnailed boots on. He kicked the door in at like half past 10 at night. We nicked the VHS and we took it to Channel 4. It just started. And Channel 4 thought, this, this, sh this show is mad and it's rude enough for us. So we'll do a version of this. And so the team that did this pilot then ended up being commissioned to write a series for Channel 4 called Who Dares Wins? You mentioned the the rude um, the rudeness of it. I'd be interested to know how how that would be interpreted today. Whether that would be considered still too rude today or or not. Well, do you want me get do you want to, me to get onto this so soon? Um, my I, I have <laughs> views. Okay. Oh yeah. I, I have views about the woke. Yeah, and actually, you know what? We've got a little um, Google document where we write down questions. And as you were saying it, I wrote down to myself. Um, well, what think of Faulty Towers episodes being deleted, wokeness, etc. So yeah, please go I ahead. Think I think it's pathetic. I think it's... When someone is offended, all they're telling you is they're offended. There is no wider truth. It's a subjective response to something. Hmm. Now, I think one has to draw a line to openly hateful, racist, sexist, ageist. I, I get that. But they're not funny. Those remarks are never funny. If you got, Peter Cook said, if you've got 400 people laughing at your joke, what you know is a good joke. And 400 people, unless they are all members of the Nazi party, but usually 400 people in an audience are a wide cross-section enough to give you a balanced view on whether your joke is on the side of the angel or not. If it's mm. not on the side of the angels, it won't get a laugh. If it's on the side of the angels, it will get a laugh. But it'll be an open recognition of some deeper truth. It may be an yeah. uncomfortable truth. It may be an awkward observation. But nevertheless, it may pinch your bottom slightly but the truth is that a good joke is very healthy it mm. reduces difficult concepts to a size that we can all laugh at them and i'm afraid that these poor souls who are hypersensitive and of course 
when someone announces their sensitivity, what they're really saying is, I am a tyrant. You can't upset me. If you upset me, I will destroy you. And that's what's happening now on Twitter. You get these idiots on Twitter who, who, who um, obviously, through their own feelings of wanting to be seen and heard in, an, in a very inordinate way, want to use this expression to cancel people. Yeah. That's, mm. If you think about that, that's totalitarianism. Do you prefer Boris Johnson or Donald Trump? Oh my God. That's like asking me if you want to go to the dentist or get your appendix out. I think I prefer Boris Johnson on the grounds that um, he did do Have I Got News to You very well for us. And uh, he, yeah. he has got quite a good sense of humour. And he, you know, and he needs it, given the job he's doing as Prime Minister. But, um, so I think on, on balance, yeah, you know what? Had you said you've got two choices, either A, Donald Trump, I would have said B, without knowing who it was. And with how we got news for you, you know, we've, we've had conversations where, um, you know, we, 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 we were doing a joke about Abu, Abu Hamza, you know, the terrorist with the hook. Yeah. And the eye. And William Hague was hosting it. And it's a very silly joke where he just said, we hear that Abu Hamza, photograph of Abu Hamza goes up. Abu Hamza um, has been receiving some help from Osama bin Laden this week. The rumor is it's to do up his shoelaces, right? So it's a stupid joke about a guy with a hook. Now the truth is, he doesn't need to have a hook, he can have a prosthetic hand. But part of his brand to scare everybody is, he wants to look like some kind of strange pirate. And the note I got from the BBC executive was, we can't have that joke, it's disabledist. Right. I said, it's not disabledist, it's a joke against Abu Hamza. And he's one of the most hated men in Britain. Mm. Who's gonna complain? But there's the, that concern about and I'd have been happy to explain to anybody who rang in who was disabled what the purpose of our joke was. It wasn't to mock the disabled, right? So I think the fear in broadcasters of giving offence to anybody now is cramping creativity. What's your favourite ever Have I Got News For You host? Oh my God. Well, Angus Deaton was very good. And I have to say, he did a fantastic job. Um, and there have been so many, uh, you know, uh, it would be invidious of me to single one of them out. Is that too, po is that too much of a politician for you? Um, no, no, that's fine. I do, I have to say, I, I mean, I think, you know, Victoria Corin Mitchell does a great job for us, Alexander Armstrong. Jeremy Clarkson is always a good turn. You know, uh, Stephen Mang. We have a lot of actors come on, Stephen Mangan, Damian Lewis, David Tennant. Um, comes on Joe Brand, we've had, uh, we've been blessed actually. I mean, having to get rid of, you know, have, Angus leaving the show was a terrible moment for us because that was a perilous moment of enforced change, which is another discussion we could have had about businesses, the amount of time where enforced change makes a business take a decision which can, is high in risk. And, you know, having a rotating host on Have I Got News For You, everybody thought it was gonna fail. And of course, that's the other, private pleasure you have running a business is proving people wrong.
I think I read an interview did possibly with the Guardian, possibly with the Evening Standard that you um, that you previously when you started the business. Um, I think they they categorised you. I'm not sure whether you'd categorise yourself as being an alcoholic at the time. I was um, a, I was an alcoholic and an, I was a, a an alcoholic and a cocaine addict. Cocaine addict. And um, I I drifted into uh, I was um, producing a show called Alas Smith and Jones which is with Mel Smith and Griffith Jones. And Mel Smith, who died um, a few years ago, <clears throat> Mel and I um, spent many evenings. He introduced me to the, to, to the delights of cocaine when I was in my early 20s. And it wiped me out. By the time I was 33, I was being helped into a rehab in the home counties. And, uh, and that was 31 years ago. And, um, and I've been clean and sober ever since. And I, I attend um, self-help meetings and that's kept me on the straight and narrow um so that's been you know, in a way um getting sober and getting into a recovery cleared my head and it, it also allowed me to drop the acting thing because i was an actor uh, throughout the 80s mm. and it was quite distracting because i always wanted to be an actor but when i hit um i did a play at the national theater which kind of cured me of wanting to be an actor <laughs> um <laughs> nothing to do with the play i just didn't like the idea of doing the same thing every night and I was probably, I was about 36, 37, and I thought to myself, can you look ahead down this road and see yourself being an actor when you're 55, 60? I thought, I really couldn't. And of course, mm. as I said, I'd begun my life as a producer, even though I didn't really want to be a producer. And I'd enjoyed it. And we'd set up Patrick, it was 1992. Patrick had been in business for uh, six years, seven years. We were doing quite well. And I thought, I will commit myself fully to this business. And that was a commitment I made 28 years ago um, and never regretted it. You know, I was in my late 30s, about to enter my 40s. And I, it took me that long to discover why I was here. You know, what, what was my role? Where, where should I sit? And I realized I should sit at, at Hattrick and help other people to develop their ideas. Because I'd been a bit of an actor and a bit of a writer. It helped me to empathize with people <clears throat> who were writers and actors because I knew what it was like to be an actor and a writer and how vulnerable you can feel when you hand your script in and how vulnerable you feel when you've just done a take on a, on a show. And so there's no question that those kind of, the years I spent in the 80s being an actor and a writer helped me enormously in my job as a producer. I noticed that in 2003, the Evening Standard labelled you a failed comic Yes, yeah, that's a fair, no, fair label. Yeah, no, we, we 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 have a joke in our house. It was when we sold we sold Hattrick for twenty fifty percent of it. We sold for twenty three million quid. So I knew I was on a loser with this Evening Standard journalist when he came into Hattrick and took his bicycle clips off. I thought this guy's not going to like the fact I just made all this money. So he sat down and he said. Um, Will the money change? I said, well, no, I've been, I've been okay for a while. I've been running a successful TV business. I've been comfortable for a, quite a while, thank you. But he was very mealy-mouthed. And The Guardian interviewed me the following day and said, I saw the Evening Standard headline. What do you make of it? I said, well, it made me laugh. I said, it, you know, you can rely on the Evening Standard. It will snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. <laughs> um, but my kids, uh, I'm, I'm known in the house as, a, as the failed, failed comedian. I tell him it's very important to fail at things because then you'll find out what you're reasonably good at.
one of the the things that people really value about um, these stories is we try and bring out not just the the glory story and um, that the version that you want to tell the press and everybody tells in hindsight, but it's really interesting to hear those uh, the ups and the downs. Um, do you have any moments now that you'd look on and say like these are the the hardest times, or well, yeah. is there? <laughs> we had a situation where we we sold the company in nineteen in two thousand and two. Um, and I just had a brief brush with throat cancer, which fortunately they managed to eradicate. But during that time, we were also engaged in selling the business to a a private equity company. Very nice guys called August Equity. They had been called Kleinwood Benson. And then they changed their name. They announced at one board meeting, they said, we're um, we're going to be called August. I said, okay. I said, you sure it's not August? being a classicist. They said, well, I said, well, you can pronounce it either way. And they, oh, uh, <laughs> it kind of caused a bit of confusion of what they, but they were really nice guys. But as you said before, at the beginning of this, you know, as a business model, it's quite baffling because it's not linear. And of course these guys get on the bus and they want to see the bus go up the hill to a different destination and then sell the bus at a much higher price. Well, our first board meeting and they bought, 49% of the company. And, you know, Denise and I were paid a lot of money. We trousered the money. Uh, but, of course, we paid the mortgage off on our houses and put a mortgage right in the middle of our business. Because as you guys know better than me, you start paying that money back to the people who bought you. Bought you they buy you with your own debt. And um, it was an unmitigated disaster. And um, it was the most frightening period of my life. Because what happened... In the succeeding two years, after the sale, we lost four of our big shows. So our earnings went like this. Our earnings went south. Mm. And, uh, and we had to pay you know, interest to Barclays Bank. And, um, <clears throat> one of our shows got cancelled in America. We had a show in America that was about to go on air called The Ortegas. And The Ortegas was an American version of a show we did called The Kumars. And the Kumars was an Indian talk show we did here with Sanjeev Bhaskar and Mira Sayal. And it was guaranteed to go on air. We were going to make a lot of money, seven-figure sum. And it got cancelled. Before it went on air, they decided they didn't want to show it. And I had to go to my first board meeting and say to these bankers, we're not going to have the income stream that we thought we were going to have. And they thought I was joking because, don't forget, I'm supposed to be the funny guy. And they think I'm telling a kind of joke. And then they realize I'm not joking. At the end of the meeting, um, one of their number, very nice guy, who was the kind of senior guy there, Andrew Hartley, said, uh, God, he said, it's a really frightening business, isn't it? He said, is there anything we can do to kind of offset these kind of situations and make it a bit smoother? I said, well, I was thinking of having the seats in your, on your side of the boardroom table fitted with belts so you can strap yourself in. I said, because... This is, this is not a business which goes in a straight line. It's mm. up and down. And that's what happened. And what happened was um, by 2000 and, um, I, you know, I was in recession long before the world was in recession. I was in recession by 2006. We could not pay our debts. And I was put into the euphemistically named support area of Barclays Bank. And I had this man come around, or Eddie Dempsey, who would come around and he would go through my development slate. I had a banker coming in 
and going through my development slate, asking me questions about my products and saying, this situation comedy you're doing outnumbered, is it any good? I said, well, yeah, I think it's pretty good. Will it make any money? I said, well, if it works, it'll make some money, but if it doesn't, it won't. And he was trying to, he was trying to find certainty in a very uncertain world. And I understand why he's trying to find certainty. But in the end, I said to him, look, this is pointless. What you need to do is go home and pray to whatever God you believe in that I don't drop dead of a heart attack tonight. Because if I do, you don't stand any chance of getting your money back ever. And of course, I then got into a, a, a fight with the bank. Not really a fight, but we had a, a disagreement of how to resolve it. And how they wanted to resolve it was this. They wanted to sell Hattrick, lock, stock and barrel. And they would just about get out with a washed face. I, on the other hand, would be stuck in the company, running my company as an employee. I didn't want to do that. Mm. So <clears throat> um, we got into a little bit of a tangle. And then out of the, I kid you, this, you if you wrote this in a, in a show, they'd say, this bit's unbelievable. You can't, you can't do this bit. It looks too much deus ex machina. But what happened was we made an investment in a company called 12 Yard, run by a very brilliant guy called David Young, who created The Weakest Link. And David had been a runner at Hattrick when he was 19. And he'd gone on over, the, last, over the, the succeeding 20 years to build a fantastic career as a format creator. And we set him up in business. And he came to see me. Denise had left the business by then. She, she'd had enough and wanted to do other things. And um, he said, I want to sell my 50% of the company. Will you buy it off me so I can stay and work with you? And I said, David, to my shame, if you cost more than £4.99, I'm not going to be able to afford you. I'm in a massive amount of debt and it looks like I'm going to go under. And so we decided we put the 50% together and we'd go into the market and we would sell 12 yards to a third party. And ITV Studios run by Dawn Airy. And it was one of her many jobs she did. Um, she, um, she was there, God bless her. She bought 12 yards for 35 million quid. And the 50% of that allowed me to buy myself out of the arrangement with the bank. I paid off the senior debt. I paid off their loan. They got a tiny bit of upside so they could show that there was a, a plus in the, in, in the books. Favorite music? Beatles. Scouser. You don't have much of a Liverpudlian accent. Did you used I to? Don't. Have you, have you I don't. I used to have a very South. strong Liverpool accent. I got to Cambridge and I began to audition for plays and I couldn't understand a word I was saying. Yeah. So I began you, to slow down. Do you still pick it up when you, when yeah. you go back to Liverpool? When I'm watching my, my team, Everton, get thrashed, it all comes out. Are you both based in Vancouver? No, mm -hmm. just me. Dan's in London. Yep. Why are you in Vancouver? Um, I moved here because I got a two-year working visa and... Right. Um, is a nice place to move to. It's a bit uh, clean for me, Vancouver. It is clean. Yeah, well, bit, most of it. It's a bit weirdly clean. I once, um, I once flew into Vancouver by seaplane from Vancouver Island in 1990. And two things I noticed. It was very clean. And I went to the loo and I began peeing blood. And um, I had to go to see a doctor. I thought I was dying. But it was bright red. And he said to me, no, you burst a blood vessel in your penis. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Gosh. I'll leave you with that memory. Of, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a kind of reworking of a Tony Bennett song. I burst my penis in Vancouver. because I left my heart in San Francisco. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, I don't know why they called you the failed comic. I think that was a great line. <laughs> that was the first episode of the second season of Can I Ask You a Personal Question with Will and Dan with Jimmy Mulville of Hattrick Productions. Next time, we'll be speaking with Monaco-based businessman Mark Dixon, best known as the founder of serviced office business Regis. Please feel free to give us a review or a rating if you've enjoyed this week's episode. And until next time, goodbye.